Dogs of Warcry is a new podcast from the Mortal Realms, focusing on Warcry, a fast-paced, cinematic skirmish game by Games Workshop. Join us for discussions on gameplay, rules, lore, painting, terrain building, campaigns, and events. In Episode 5, we dig into the gameplay of Warcry, the importance of abilities, and tactically waiting. All of this from our vast 10 weeks of experience. Welcome to the Warband. My name is Eric, or Stonemont Gamer, and answering the call with me this episode is Thrallmaster Josh. Hello. And the bottle finder himself, Pavend. Heyo! <laughs> How are you guys doing tonight? Great. Doing good, feeling good. Nice. What's uh, What's been new? We've been, we've been two weeks out uh, since our uh, last recording. Um, Pavend, how have the last two weeks been for you? Uh, the hobby's been pretty good. Uh, Two weeks ago, um, on Warcry night, both of my kids got the stomach flu. So I missed Warcry night that night. And so that was like a hobby low, I would say. Um, it's been picked up since then. I made a lot of hobby progress, which we'll get to. And I'm feeling good about how we brought home the league. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Josh, how has the last two weeks been for you? I agree. No, it's been it's been busy, and uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's that time of year. Bugs been flying around the house, but but otherwise, been making some good progress in a variety of hobby fronts, which is awesome. Nice, nice. Yeah, I've had the busiest couple weeks at work, um, and it doesn't. I don't see any sign of it letting up. Um, but you know what? We're gonna go ahead and uh, release biweekly podcasts, uh, run more leagues, and have an event in a month. So. Uh, who cares about work? Uh, yeah, straight. <laughs> Real world can wait. Exactly. Well, let's drop. <laughs> let's uh, drop into that hobby progress. Um, Paven, uh, tell us a little bit about what you've accomplished. All right. I had a slow start on my defiled rune set. I couldn't get a paint scheme together, but my co-host and me talked about it last podcast uh, off air, and I kind of took a combination of all of their advice. Uh, Eric said, turn up the tone, the tonal difference. Josh gave me some good uh, color wheel uh, information. I kind of combined those and got a dark blue to go with my kind of light tan. And I feel really good about how things are progressing. I have the two big buildings left that are about half done and like the statue. So I feel I feel good about that. Um, it was it was an interesting kind of experience painting all this terrain. It's definitely different. I, it is my first like kind of large set of terrain I've ever painted as part of my hobby. Um, and so that was cool to do that and have that accomplished. I probably like painting miniatures better now that I'm at the end of it because, I don't know, I just appreciate a painted miniature more in the end. Um, no idea what my next project's going to be. There's too much really exciting stuff coming out of GW right now, um, but I have at least like a week or so to think about it. Awesome. Nice. And yeah, the ruins look awesome, by the way, just saying. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think you, you took a very good route on that, and it was. Uh, I'm excited to see once you get some mushrooms on there and mm-hmm. some... Oh Good yeah, old growing. Yeah, I started working on that. And I didn't like it, so I decided I was just gonna like kind of paint it all out of the box and then try to mushroom up a little piece and see how I feel about that. But I, there is a chance I'll just leave it kind of standard. You know, you could um, do something where you have like scatter um, mold or mushrooms or things. Uh, so if you kept it all ground level, mm-hmm. or I was trying to think of a way to like drape stuff 
Like instead of a solid base, could you do it on like a piece of cloth and then have stuff like modeled off of it and just hanging over a lot of different just ways. Lichen. Yeah, just use some like, lichen. You know, the, the reindeer well, moss to kind of hang it over stuff, make it look clean. He said he wasn't liking it. <laughs> uh, what are you uh what are you working on next pavement i don't know i don't know there's uh like i said there's just like a lot of really exciting stuff uh the new orc war clans book is really cool so that might mean i dust off some iron jaws and paint some new ones for a war cry war band um there's the cities of sigmar book is also really cool doesn't have a war band yet in Warcry, but i would love to start that project that way because it's really intimidating because i don't really have any minis for that range yet so i don't know i don't know but i you know i don't start my next project until i've previous uh, i finished my previous one so i have some time mm-hmm. josh what were you just saying well, i was saying varengard you know I, I remember a conversation several weeks back about coming up with one of those war bands as a project Nice, putting that idea in the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh, what have you uh, been working on the last couple of weeks? Oh, my main focus has been um, sculpting and, and getting some models painted for the, the painting competition for the league. So I did get four of those done and then whipped up a base because there was some pressure on the podcast, people <laughs> whipping up bases. <laughs> and um, So we got that entered and uh, happy. I really like the color scheme, so I'm definitely looking forward to getting the rest of the models in the warband, uh, get the ears on and get them all painted up to see them all together. Then I got to keep that momentum going. And at the same time, kind of uh, started browsing and putting together images for the starter set terrain and the, and the shattered storm vault to start painting that up. Cause uh, Paven has inspired me and, you know, with uh, events and things coming up, I really want to get that terrain painted so that everything looks nicely together. Yeah, no, definitely. Those, uh, those fox ears and the iridescent colors on those, and the color shift paints. Yeah. yeah. Looks really cool. So glad you got four of them done. I can't wait to see more of them on the table. And uh, this, you know, the past few weeks, just, well, I was trying to think, I think I counted seven, you know, fully painted warbands or, you know, a lot of models painted and, and on display for that. Uh, that's quite a bit of hobby that's happened in the last eight weeks. So mm-hmm. um, also proud that that's kind of accompanied uh, the, the league and been a priority for some people. So, mm-hmm. um, I know there's a few painted armies that uh, painted war bands that didn't, uh, weren't able to make it to the, to the display yet. So maybe they're there this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, going to pop over to do some voting and see how they're going, uh, this weekend. But I, uh, I also was painting for this. I had, um, had a bunch of, like I said, last time, I think I had a bunch of stuff started a bunch of the untamed beast started, uh, but managed to paint up a thousand points. I think it was nine seventy or something like that. Um, and it included some of my favorite models. So the, the heart eater, the first fang, the beast speaker, two of the, the, um, flesh hounds that I'm using as rock tusk prowlers, mm-hmm. three and, and three of the planes runners. Um, so that was, uh, cool to get those on the table. And then I, <laughs> I had, I started, uh, this, uh, escalation of terrain, I guess, for the displays. Uh, and then in the end, wasn't able to pick up one of those, um, uh, herd stones. And so I was ah. like, do I have anything I can do otherwise? So I took my bell tower from the starter kit. Uh, I took off the bell, which I might replace at some point, but, um, and I used, um, the stone horn skull and a few um, thunder tusk or the the th- what's the cannon? I can't remember what the ogre cannon's called. Um, mm, yeah, I know what you're talking about though. Yeah, got bust- uh, No, not the got busters. Uh, what's yeah. it called? Man, it's been so long since I've I've played with the 
the cannons um, since eighth edition. Um, and so it took some of the, there's some tusks that go on that. So I took some of those and made it look like they're strapped onto there. So I just, and a, a banner uh, that went on there to kind of fit the mood. And so I've got that tower kind of in the center of my warband and everybody's standing on, on top or around it and nice. felt really good. It's not as far along as I want it to be. So there's still more painting to do on that to blend it all in, but it was cool getting it over there and, and setting it up and yeah, capping off our league. Um, but yeah, so, and now um, we've got, I've been working on put out the, the second and quote unquote final pack for the upcoming uh, narrative event in Madison. And then from here until there, it's going to be a lot of hobby focused on, getting uh you know eight tables around uh full of terrain but even more importantly a lot of narrative to kind of uh position for this so Mm -hmm. um we'll talk more about that later um but yeah that's been my hobby Mm -hmm. why don't we uh get a little update on how our campaign went now that we've wrapped up our eighth week uh josh um i believe even though you went on to a second quest. Um, I th- believe you probably still ended up with the highest amount of glory for that, that first war band ending the quest. Uh, how did your last couple of weeks end up with kind of a new quest and, and playing at a different level back at the beginning level with your war band? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it's been fun. Uh, kind of, uh, I think I said like the last podcast we had, it was kind of describing how it's kind of interesting to have that some of that tactical knowledge, but starting over again at a thousand points and, and how you work with fewer models against, you know, some more experienced or larger war bands. So definitely been fun challenge. And uh, this past week I was, I was helping one of our locals get, uh, you know, get a game in for the first time. And so I didn't get a chance to play, but I was really happy with how the, uh, the league turned out and how my warband made it through the first quest and is, you know, positioned for the next set. And, uh, we've got to think about a little bit how I'm going to change up my leader and we'll start over from scratch for the next league or not. Or so I still got to brainstorm a bit about that, but really had a, a fun time taking this warband through it and looking forward to getting them painted up and running them through another one. Yeah. Very cool. Pavend, how was your last, uh, campaign night? Um, it was very good. I was able to pick up one more, one more win at the last game. Uh, Eric was on his convergence, and I was able to, you know, tactically outthink him and strategically outmaneuver him. Um, his final convergence, no less. Yeah, his fi- yeah, yeah. It would have been, it would have been such a high note to end on. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> denied. It was a really great game, actually. I thought I had it in the bag the entire game, and it came down to the last activation, which was a really uh, cool place for it to be in. It was one of those games where he secretly selects a quarter uh, or a quadrant of the of the map and then needs to clear me out from that one, but I don't know which one it is. And he, uh, on the first turn, he just loaded up all the spiders onto one quadrant, and I was like, well, it's obviously this one. This Eric, this dummy, revealed his whole hand to me. <laughs> and um, so, like, we spend the whole day, the whole game scrapping over that quadrant. I end up with, like, six spiders in there. Um, but I had enough gits that I was like, all right, well, just in case, I'm going to put a, uh, a fighter in every quadrant. And on the second-to-last activation, he picks off my one my one grot in, like, the northwest. And I'm like, uh-oh. And then, but I had just one more activation where I bounced a squig out of combat. And I wasn't even sure I was going to do it because I was so certain that it was the quadrant where he had overloaded, but I did it anyway. And that turns out he'd been fooling me the whole time. Um, nice. Very nice. So I was able to come out with it. 
I'm uh, much yeah. smarter than I look. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have to be. Ding <laughs> <laughs> zing. Uh, no, that was a fantastic game, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of of bluffing, right? I mean, um, and I don't think I'd exp- I'd had a game like that in Warcry yet, where it was more mental uh, than it was dice, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, yeah, the I was hoping to tie up some things, and I had started that last round, um, not knowing how I was going to kill that one grot that was sitting in that one in the quadrant that I needed to clear, um, and I was trying to keep your attention other places and throw you off by, you know, like chasing planes runners into weird areas, uh, and I I started that turn with more activations, uh, so I was like, okay, I can I can just not show my hand until the last one or two activations. And I was the whole time I'm counting, like, what can I, you know, like, what can I do? Which things can act to, to see me win, uh, to see me succeed. And the, you got the first activation and you killed two models with, <laughs> with the, with the <laughs> bottle, bottle finder. I think I was one activation up and I went to one activation down. Um, and so, uh, uh, that was enough to make it so that I had to reveal my hand at the last minute. And I even tried. I tried to, he had the, I knew that the bounders, the, the squig riders were going to be the worst because they can go anywhere. So at the very least I had to like make them disengage. And then at the, at the best I had to make them act towards something other than moving. Right. Um, so I, I, uh, you put that grot out into the open and I took a shot at him with my first fang, and, and you were like, "Oh, he's over there." I was like, "Well, no, this is just the only thing he can shoot, and I'm just trying to take models out, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. just just playing it off as you know, I've probably already the lost." What a liar, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you play mafia much? <laughs> I've, pl- I've played a game or two of that. Uh, no, it was a it was a fantastic game. It was a lot of fun. It wasn't about the brute force. It wasn't about who killed who like that was a frustrating too. So I went into the, there's a big scrum in the middle with your squigs and I tried to kill bottle finder. I could not kill a single squig. Uh, oh. and at some point in the middle, I was just like, I'm, I'm done trying. I'm just done <laughs> trying to kill squigs. <laughs> <laughs> not worth it. But, uh, but no, that was a pretty rad game. Uh, so overall guys, um, we did eight weeks. We plan to do eight weeks and, uh, you guys were a big, uh, part of the success and showing up every week or most weeks um, and giving people good games. Was it everything you guys hoped it would be? You know, I didn't know what to expect, uh, you know, because we were all pretty new to Warcry. I, I think it turned out to be more than I was hoping and had a lot of fun, a lot of fun opponents, and, they, and uh, nobody was afraid to change warbands, try new things out. So I'm really uh, curious to see how many will get back for the next league and what warbands will take forward. But, uh, but yeah, had a great time. Yeah, how about you, Payment? It was great. Uh, I think I got everything I wanted out of it. I got a lot of good games. Got to see a lot of cool war bands. Met some cool people in the local community. I got I progressed on my quest a lot. I'm actually just on that final convergence, so maybe there's going to be have to be an off the books game just to get me over the over the edge there, so I can uh, close the loop on that one. But it was super fun. Thanks for putting it on, Eric. Absolutely. 
I wasn't sure if I, I've never done anything like a, a league. Um, a lot of the, you know, the Mortal Realms crew and Age of Sigmar started, um, you know, it kind of was trying to get the greater community together. So we did a lot with the podcast and even with Dogs of War Cries, really about kind of celebrating with the larger community all over the US, all over the world, all over the UK, et cetera. Um, and so spending time locally trying to build community hasn't been what I've been, spent as much time at uh, doing. We did like monthly game nights a couple of years back to try and, you know, build some of that, uh, put on coalescence to try and kind of meet some more people. But it, uh, and Josh, that's where you and I first met, you know, three or four, mm-hmm. three years ago, maybe. Um, but it's really kind of taken this to kind of really, I don't know, give me some practice in trying to build something. And so I had a couple of goals. One, obviously I wanted to play the game clean out of the book and, and see, like give it time to like stand on its own feet. Um, and I wanted to make sure that every person that came into the, that showed up at league night could get in a game and felt welcomed. And, you know, regardless of what level of hobby they're in, um, and, you know, certainly there's the aspects of wanting to keep growing or, you know, get lots of people there, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I'm still kind of worried about things like momentum and, uh, you know, if you take, if you have something happen where you have a week off or, you know, something like that, are people going to show up the next week kind of stuff? So mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to figure out what the balance of that is, you know, worrying about that or just playing more games. And I think at the, at the end of it, I just, you know, I want to do more uh, creating the environments or the times or the spaces for, you know, I'm going to say it this way, me and my friends, um, mm-hmm. in hopes that that's something that other people want to be get in on too. So, um, you know, the, 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 we did All Hallows Siege last year. Now we're going to be doing the, the Plunging Spires with War Cry. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all those things, like, I feel like it was a good step for me in trying to figure out how to, help my friends and people in their community have fun with these games like mm-hmm. here, not just in theory online or on a podcast, you know, now we get to play Dr. Frankenstein and mess with it, <laughs> toy with it, tear it apart, put it back together and mm-hmm. see what we come up with. And I'm looking forward to that too. I hope we have some of the same people and even more join us our next go around. So mm-hmm. yeah, like we will that. see. We'll see. That'll start up probably in, in a few weeks, probably end of like in November, maybe right before the the plunging spires happen. So we won't have many weeks before that. But so there's not much uh, news out about Warcry on the Warhammer community or anywhere else. We've got a few things you'll hear about uh, with upcoming events, etc. Uh, later in the episode and um, you know in the coming weeks. So for now, no news. But that's all right. Some of us are feeling like we need a little bit of break. I got a lot to do. I don't need uh, those new models coming out just yet. Uh, So we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll get into our victory condition. We'll see you in a minute. The Mortal Realms is running our first Warcry narrative event on Saturday, November 16th in Madison, Wisconsin. It's titled The Plunging Spires. It's a tight 16-player four-game map campaign with random tables and an unreplenishable roster. If you're in the Midwest and thinking of coming, registration will open soon. If not, we'll have lots to talk about in future episodes on Dogs of Warcry. More info at themortalrealms.com. All right, welcome back. 
for our victory condition, Josh, why don't you lay it out for us? What are we here to discuss? Our victory condition this episode is to discuss the game rules in a generic sense. And we're going to share our personal experiences, any tips we've got, tactics we've used for our warbands, using the mechanics and the rule sets. We're not going to read through everything in particular detail. We're going to share kind of a personal experience and how the rules work for us and how we use them to, you know, try and win our games. Nice. The first thing we're going to start with are the warbands. You know, as everybody knows, you have to have a warband to play Warcry. And in most games, you require at least 1,000 points with a total of 20 models in your roster and 15 on the table at one time. Uh, of course, you require one leader, which is clarified in the fact you have to have one on the table. Thralls are not added to the roster. You don't get thralls until later after dominating a territory in a campaign setting. And um, so you can theoretically have more than 20 models on the roster because thralls don't count, but you still need 15 models on the table. Allies, monsters are on the roster and a special unique roster that we kind of talked about when we covered monsters and mercenaries. Um, in match play, you're allowed one ally. In a campaign play, you can have one ally per dominated territory. And then, of course, you have to do challenge battles to actually have a monster and be able to control it. And then, of course, challenge battles are events or events that are outside of that, like the arena battle that was in the uh, September White Dwarf, um, can alter what points or how many models you can have on the table at one particular time. So this has to do with kind of your, your warband makeup, the things that can go onto the table. Um, Obviously, we have primarily worked out of the core rules. Uh, we haven't gotten into monsters and, and mercenaries yet. You know, thralls are a part uh, that, you know, we've had opportunities to play. We've each been able to kind of mix up our roster a little bit more or have a few more options to choose from and therefore change what we put on the table and when. From the start of our campaign or from breaking Warcry out of the box initially and putting models on the table to, you know, 15, 20 games later, how has how has like the your flexibility or ability to to, you know, kind of build your roster and then, you know, kind of think about what you put on the table. How has that changed, Paven, since kind of day one? Have you been doing the same all from the from the beginning or uh, has this list building aspect been important for you? So my thinking has changed. I feel like I've learned some things. I want to first put out that I'm not a very, uh, I'm not like a, you know, a match play expert. So take all of my tips with a big grain of salt. But here's kind of how I, there's a couple of things I think about when uh, putting together a roster. Um, the first thing that I maybe learned was that how important just bodies are on the table. Because like an objective doesn't care whether, you know, you're a brute or a grot. So just having like two two grots or you know is 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 pretty valuable. So just like always think about like do I have enough bodies to like flood zones, to gum up my opponent, to capture objectives? Um, it's something something definitely to consider. Another thing is I like to balance out all of my hammer, dagger, and shield. I think there is an argument to be made to like overloading your dagger, um, which I've seen people do, but there are more than one copy of kill everything in this group to win the game. And so if you ever put like just one in your hammer, um, sometimes Paven will be able to steal a win from you that way. I <laughs> <laughs> hmm, wonder who you're that, talking about. <laughs> I also really enjoy kind of narratively like uh, putting my putting my groups together and my list together. Like I always have a squig herd as my shield. So it's like the herder and then all of the squig, all of the squig, like the not the bounders or anything, but just the regular squigs are all in one group. 
And so like that's fun to deploy. The roster to me, like I've said it before, it's kind of like your collection of things you want to have options from. And so it's fun to, you know, build your roster or put things in your in your collection as you imagine your warband, right? I don't do much with the prey takers. I don't know if I've played a single game with the prey takers. You know, like it's something to explore later, but my makeup is primarily the beasts, the dogs and the and the the planes runners. But there's that aspect of building your list and deciding what are you going to put on the table into the those three kind of pieces, the dagger, hammer, shield. And it's what you put in there does feel like kind of one aspect of the character of the army. I like to have the planes runners because they give me more models. And they give me more activations. And once in a while with, you know, three attacks, you know, they can, and three crit damage, they can do do something right <laughs> but there's also a lot of utility in the untamed beasts uh so i would i would probably be hesitant to try and like you know use overly use any one type uh other than i think what i have like six or seven planes runners in my last game with you pavent um they're nice but like turn three like a ton of them just get not wiped off the board really quick and you can lose some activations but um but then like, i like to put I like to put my uh, leader and one of my rock tusk prowlers in my hammer and that's other, there's a lot of other things that have changed, but that has stayed the same because <laughs> they just feel like they're supposed, they're supposed to be my hammer. Uh, yeah, they're potent. They are. And, and speaking of hammers, the other kind of point I wanted to make was like, you do want a couple like pieces that are going to take stuff off the board, like your dogs and your, and your, uh, your heart, heart eater. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause you just, sometimes you just need to bring, bring the pain and you gotta you gotta have guys that do that. You can't just like all grots. Well, maybe you could. I don't know, but <laughs> I try to you know. I try to bring some killy stuff. How about yeah. you, Josh? No, I think you know. I kind of started out with a you know I got two box sets so I could build one extra or two extra two-handed weapons, you know, so I can get some extra reach for help for survivability, and I think that worked out well. So, but uh, you know, the the models, you know, the point-wise are expensive enough where. I had eight models to start with, and I had to I had to dominate a territory, and I was able to get a fury. I couldn't afford anything else, and then I slowly was able to change the list a little bit as I got more and more points. But uh, but one thing, you know, kind of like Paven had said in our last episode, is most of it stayed the same. There were a few things where it's like, okay, now I have enough points where I can take a mirror blade instead of a mind bound, so that a little bump up in you know in, in capability. But I still always wanted to keep at least one fury, just because that that eight movement fly was really great for threatening people, holding them up, or grabbing an objective. So I, I found that mobility really helpful. Um, but, you know, like you guys all said, you know, I found the number of activations, having, you know, having at least eight or more bodies on the table was extremely important. Mobility was key, you know, and so I learned to focus kind of on those things and the abilities which helped me out with that. And, and learning some of the generic abilities like the inspiring presence where your leader can activate another model right away, you know, it was one I hadn't used before until somebody used it. And I was like, oh, right, I really got to look at those again. You know, there's a lot of really good options to help you figure out, okay, well, what models do I put in each of my dagger, hammer, shield, and when do I use certain abilities? And, I mean, I want to use my abilities, the generic one might be more appropriate in this particular game. So I did learn a lot in this first league, and I'm really interested to see how it turns out. I, I did note we really didn't have a roster in this league because we were all kind of learning, and so there was no risk to kind of, oh, I'm going to change this up or I'm going to change that up. And, you know, and of course, models that die just get replaced. So that, that's one thing that... We had a lot of flexibility there, but it'll be interesting to see what happens if you actually had to build a roster of 20 models before the league starts and what does yeah. that look like. 
Yep, I think that's uh, the roster is, and it's still something we're wrapping our heads around because I think we get, uh, conf- you know, it's easy to kind of confuse the roster, which is kind of deciding a pool of miniatures from which you can uh, deploy on a on, in a game, uh, which has its different limitations and maxes and minis, etc. Uh, from you know what your what your starting you know warband on the table can be in points and. Uh, how that changes as you progress through a quest, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think we talked about it two episodes ago uh, when we were talking about um, questing and all that kind of stuff. That as you gain some things, right? I mean, so at some point I had, you know, an artifact on every every model um, or every fighter in my roster or something like that. And so at some point you're you're losing them, but it, but you get having maybe you have enough. Artifacts where that isn't a big deal, or maybe it, that one thing that has the destiny on it and has the, the one. artifact, and, uh, <laughs> you know, the one destiny, the, or maybe the it's, one it's, one model with destiny levels. So. <laughs> or you get your you get your favored hero or your favored fighter, and that you know kind of moves them up, and they have get a little bit better, and then you lose them, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like that that could start um, doing it. And I think as they've, yeah, as you have more choices kind of filling that up or maybe things that are more points, et cetera, that that might uh, become more of a choice. And as you saw, like in, in the plunging spires, we've limited the roster to 15 to start trying to put a little bit more of a squeeze on that. Mm -hmm. Um, You got a little less to choose from. Um, And, you know, if something dies, you can't replace it. So um, I think there's room to make the roster a little more potent. I guess, give it some mechanics to make it more, I don't know what the word is. Yeah. Something you have to really worry about. Are you guys excited about adding allies and monsters to your warband? Do you feel like it's going to end up taking out a lot of your army makeup that you've come to rely on and have to figure out how to rely on something else? All the above. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm really excited to, well, first, uh, you know, to, to look at, you know, the, the number of allies that, you can, you know, the chaos factions can choose from in general and just like, oh, okay, well, you know, what? Do I think I need to add to help my forces or what would be kind of fun? You know, how it fits narratively. How does that change my story? And also, you know, got the Chimera. I would love to throw in there. And it's, you know, it's over 300 points. So it's definitely going to eat up a lot of, uh, of the Warband size. But I think just the, the fact of having these new faded quests and these challenge battles is going to be a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to all of that. Yeah. Nice. Do you think, uh, Paven, uh, if you're looking at adding uh, somebody or a mercenary to your your roster, are you going to put that ally in and take out some of the smaller point models to get them in? Or are you going to take out a specialist? Do you have an idea of how you're going to swap that in? Well, like the what's nice is that the Grot heroes are all pretty... I don't, what's the right? I don't want to say bad, but they're not super <laughs> tough. <laughs> it's like one guy sells potions, the other guy is on drugs. Um, so they're not, they're not upside, not very expensive. So yes. I don't. I, get, I like they. I can just swap out just some other, you know, s- scrub and uh-huh. get, get some of those heroes in. That's cool. yeah. Josh, are you uh, with your? With your big old manticore, are you uh, taking out some of those two-hand weapon stuff, or are you taking out more mind-bound? You know, it's a it's a great question. I think it'll it'll since you know for any of the creature battles, you have to have one or two territories to risk before you can even consider it. So I think if by that point, 
Um, I can use some of the points I've gained from dominated territories to go towards the monster, but I'll definitely have to drop something. And I think it'll it'll really depend on the game. On okay, do I need more bodies or do I want the longer range? And how does the monster actually play? You know, does it help or not? <laughs> that kind of yeah. thing. It'll be interesting. I do think uh, you know. Similarly, I've got you know um, a uh, slaughter priest that I'm interested in putting in. You know, a bray shaman or maybe the the war queen. Um, all those are cool, but yeah, I mean, I, there's a like as mentioned, the untamed beasts have a lot of utility at the higher end of their spectrum, maybe more so than some other warbands. And I, each game, I have to decide: am I going to focus on kind of uh, beast speakers and activating um, some of my rock dust prowlers, or do I go with the first thing and have some range or some ability to kind of reposition somebody? It's nice when I can have a little bit of both. One of the things that I think is, and maybe it's more conducive in match play, uh, being able to know kind of the the types of the the scenarios that you have to choose from, mm-hmm. or at a match play event where maybe you know what um, what the scenarios, what the victory conditions are, so that you can build a list to the condition. Whereas, you know, as we'll talk about in a moment, how how the current setup is, you know, your makeup when you don't know what your game is going to be you kind of have to build something, a list or a collection of models that is does a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, you, and, and that can be really helpful. If you knew it was going to be objective mission and you and you just took, uh, what did we build the list? 14 planes right. runners and a heart uh, eater. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem like the most fun, but it would probably be effective for objective play, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so you kind of have to do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that in order to kind of be flexible to whatever the cards are going to turn up, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Reflecting on, you know, the $50 chaos box where you get a little bit of everything, that's probably the right move compared to, uh, you know, some of the other non-chaos warbands where you have, if you want to get that variety, you got to go a few more places. You got to pick a few more things. When we did our, our muster episode, yeah, there's a few times where you could get, you know, the hunter box or the griffhound box and get all griffhounds on the table and you're ready to go, but you're kind of just you've got one type of ability that you're bringing to the table and that may not work for as many scenarios, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, well, and your special abilities, you know, with the doubles and the triples and quads are reliant on certain models in your force too, so you really got to consider you know, if I get a triple and I've got no models to use it for, it's kind of a bummer. That's where the generic abilities can help, though, too. There's a lot of ways to build your list. A variety and a broad spectrum of abilities is great. Um, now let's talk about uh, the board size. Uh, this question gets it comes up once in a while. Um, it's 22 inches by 30 inches. Um, and that was a weird size when we were learning about it, um, that it was... You know, it's the kill team size, but we, none of us played kill team very much, so didn't really register that. Um, it's meant to fit on a coffee table, easily put in more spaces than than the kind of previous uh, playing on four foot by six foot boards with big armies. How has that size, uh, Josh, influenced kind of your ways of thinking about the game? Um, I think you know I did play kill team quite a bit, and so I, I enjoyed the the board size because you are in the action much faster, much sooner. And I, I think that also speeds up the game quite a bit. And I found that true for War Cry as well, especially since most of the victory conditions, are, you know, you're finishing the game in three or four rounds, that having that smaller size helps the game, the pace, and uh, helps the action um, quite a bit. 
Um, also, from a, a terrain building perspective or painting perspective, I think it's a nice size because you can do a lot in that space and not have it feel overwhelming that you're trying to fill a you know four by six foot table sort of thing. So uh, I did think it's a good size, and and I know at the Warhammer store that we play at, it's a smaller store, but we're still able to get four to five different tables going because of the board size. So it's it's been working out really well, I think. Agree, Paven. Anything? Uh, had you played on kind of uh, war games or miniature games on that size of a board? Yeah, I had also played Kill Team Eric. Um, so what you're saying is everything I said before was just BS. <laughs> yeah, speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I don't know if I have anything to add on top of Josh. I really like the small footprint game uh, more because of what it means with regard to hobby and time a game takes, rather than mm-hmm. I don't know if I have any insights to. Um, just the size of the on the size of the board. Yeah, I think I think because you're rarely deploying, like you get this side and I get this, you know, you get that edge and I get this edge, right? It's rarely that kind of cut and dry or just like you know furthest away you can be. Most of the we'll talk about deployments in a little bit, uh, but either your your deployments vary and you're scattered all over the board. Um, you've got and and you've got vertical. Um, mm-hmm. And I find almost the the amount of vertical makes uh, more of a difference in the game than necessarily the the twenty two by thirty inches. Like you're absolutely right that it gets you right in the action, and the thing that kind of might keep you out of the action is the terrain, mm-hmm. um, for good or bad or fun or you know not or whatever. And so the the board size I think is perfect, but somewhat irrelevant um, in terms of like the board size isn't the thing that I think about impacting the game that much um, from, from the standpoint, there's so many other variables that, that do that. I would say the other thing I like um, is that I'm closer to my opponent <laughs> as it comes <laughs> to having conversations right. uh, and laughing yes. about things uh, and that sort of stuff. Um, and I think that that's a positive uh, for the, the social aspect of the game. So um, no, it's pretty cool. All right setup this can be confusing this can be hard even we've played a number of games and we still get some of these the order of things incorrect um so we'll let's do a quick walkthrough and and i think josh you've had probably the more most dialed in on this than anybody do you want to go through kind of the steps of things and then we can come back and talk about a few of them yeah no definitely i'd be happy to um, so, so one of the things, the first thing to do in setup is it's kind of out of the sequence of everything is you roll priority. Each person rolls one die and the highest person wins the priority roll. And, and that affects the rest of the setup in a variety of different ways. The person who wins the priority roll gets to draw the cards in a, in a particular sequence, which we'll cover. And the person who loses the priority roll has to first assign all their models to the dagger, hammer, and shield. And then the person who won priority will do that. So it gives you a slight advantage in the sense that the person who won priority can decide if they want to change anything in their distribution of models or not. Um, In a standard game, the person who won priority will draw the cards. And the way that it's kind of described in in the box, in the rule book, and how we do it is they'll draw a terrain card first. And then the board gets set up. Then they'll draw a deployment card, and the winner of the priority roll gets to decide which color they're going to be for the pro- for the deployment. And it, the sequence of these battlefield cards is nice because everything is kind of blinded as you're going through the process. And so after you've deployed everything, 
then you draw the victory card and decide, you know, you figure out, okay, what are the victory conditions? And if there's an attacker or defender, you might need to roll off and determine who is the attacker or defender. And then after that is determined, you draw the twist card. Um, and we just wanted to briefly touch on that in the match play, multiplayer games like Coalition of Death and Triumph and Treachery, there are differences in how the, the priority role works and how deployment, victory conditions, twists, and all the setup work. So we're going to kind of cover our generic games, um, you know, standard games that we've done for the campaign leagues. But we wanted to point out that for those particular types of missions, there are variances in different ways those are handled. And definitely look into that further before you play those games. Um, so the priority rule, you know, we roll the dice and then at that point we're deciding which models am I going to put on the field? How many points do I have to work with? And then, uh, like you said, the the person who loses the roll off assigns their dagger, hammer, and shield. And, you know, we've all kind of talked that we've kind of settled into somewhat of how what we're going to put on the table already um, and which which of those three that they're going to go into and Paven, you've got kind of try to equal them out. Have you guys had a chance or felt like you wanted to change up your dagger, hammer and shield in response to somebody else's dagger, hammer and shield in theory, that's something you can do. Has that played out for you? I I've never once done that. Um, I don't even know how I would. I, I feel like I don't have enough information to even try it. Like we don't know what the deployment is. We don't know what the victory is. Um, or even like the terrain on the board. Uh, I don't know, Josh, uh, I'm curious what you would think. No, I agree with you, Pavin. Um, I have not once taken advantage of that opportunity. Uh, I typically, you know, and I think like Pavin said, I typically use the same models every time I've got, okay, I'm going to put my champion in the dagger with a couple models, you know, one with at least a two inch range, put my leader in the shield with a few models, one with at least a two inch range. And then, you know, usually two models or so in the hammer and, uh, and kind of distribute, Two inch range, single attacks, you know, or multiple attacks with single models. I usually put a fury in the in my dagger if I have one, because it's faster. It can kind of go out there and grab an objective. But I haven't felt the need, I guess, to you know, to modify that based on who I'm facing. You know, in most cases, I could see that you know, if I'm facing somebody that's got a really low model count army like Iron Jaws. I had multiple models, so it was like, oh, maybe I swap out two of my little guys for another champ or something. I could maybe see that happening, but I just haven't felt the need, I guess. I'd prefer to have more bodies, I think. Yeah, I put you know four or five Planeswalkers in my dagger because in my head, that's like the scouts. I do think the hammer often is, is very common to come on the table first. And so that's where I put most of my utility. Um, you know, I make sure I have one of my rock tusks in there. I have, you know, my B speaker. Oh, the and, shield. Or, okay. uh, sorry, in my shield. Uh, in my, you know, my B speaker, my first fang, maybe a planes runner or two to kind of act as shield or do some things like that. If I have a thrall, I'll often put them in the shield. Um, part of that, I mean, the game design is that you need to put at least a third of your models. Is that correct? You have to have at least yep. a third in the shield. And so mm-hmm. that kind of tells you a little something that's your durable uh, wounds in that uh, in that group than the others. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a third in each, right? Um, but it kind of hints or um, kind of nods towards that being important i load that and and so some of that is because in early games i did kind of spread them out i'd put you know first fang in the dagger and i'd put the b speaker in the shield and i put the um, leader in the uh, hammer and they'd be kind of spread out but then i didn't know when i you know like when i got them in if they're going to be in the right place 
And so I've felt like the shield is where I can put things more that I want to use more reliably. Kind of nice. The hammer often comes in last. At least that's, you know, it says dagger, shield, then hammer when you deploy them. Uh, and so I've, in my head, I'm like, okay, I kind of save him a little bit uh, mm-hmm. from being picked off early game. The downside of that is sometimes he comes in at the third round and has one round to do anything and he can't, you know? So right. there's a lot of unknowns though. So being able to match it up against somebody else, I, I don't have a lot of strategy there. I have made a variety of lists saying, okay, well, if I had this many points, I might take this instead of this. But I just you know, never yeah. thought it was a good choice at the time. I was like, oh, it might take two champs in a game. But no, I never thought I needed yeah. it. So Yeah, I think I did similar to you where I, I just I had a set number or my set warband. And as I gained territories, I would just add one more model or this mm-hmm. one. Or sometimes I'd, I'd swap out a couple of things just to try something new. But right. uh, then we get into the battlefield card setup. And this one uh, threw us a little bit because in... In the rules, it says for you know you draw each of them, and so sometimes when you draw, you think you're turning them over right away. But then it makes more sense to reveal them and do them in that sequence, blind, like you said. What's interesting with that is that the battlefield cards in this sort of deployment or or way of doing it really set you up to to not knowing what's coming next and being okay with that. And that's kind of new compared to other games, um, where often you're kind of rolling and you're picking the scenario. Everybody looks at it, sees what it is, and you kind of, uh, you know, you build, you deploy, you do a lot of things in response to what the victory condition is or what the battle condition is. And this, I think, has turned out to be one of the most defining aspects of Warcry is that kind of openness to letting the the cards tell you what game you're going to play tonight. Um, Pavend, uh, did, did you think you were going to like that from the beginning? I have liked it a lot. I don't know if I had an opinion at the beginning, but I like the curated nature of the different scenarios that you're not, it's really just done there for you. It just tells you to draw the four cards and go from there. Um, I do like that. There's really not a lot of, I don't know. There's like, you don't have quite enough information that you really have to hem and haw about like what deployment to choose. Cause you really just don't have enough inform Like you don't know the how to win at that, at the point you choose your deployment. So it really is like everybody kind of gets revealed all the information at the same time. And then it's just, you're playing the game rather than like really, you know, stressing about deployment like you would in like, you know, one of the big army games. You know, I think um, the games can be um, very one-sided at times. And I think, I think that's a fun challenge. Um, But I think what it's really nice is it encourages kind of a generic list building, generic setup. And, um, and then you have this surprise challenge. Okay. Now, now I've got everything set up. What is it I've got to do? And I, and I kind of enjoy that aspect, that troubleshooting, risk management situation. Um, and, and it makes for an exciting game, I think. And you're like, oh, okay, I've got a super challenging scenario here, but how do I win this? Or, you know, what can I learn from this? You know, And then the next time you play that sort of scenario or that situation, you're much better prepared. So I do enjoy that quite a bit. After you play enough games, so if you do get kind of a, a victory condition, uh, more than once, you kind of start getting it. And uh, I do like the fact that the core game is very random and that really makes the convergences really unique where you ha- do have a set uh, kind of sometimes you often have a set terrain uh, setup. You mm-hmm. often have a set victory condition um, and it can change, you know, deployment and twists can be unique. Um, that makes them 
stand out more. Um, and it makes them something that you can bring more tactics to or think ahead on, which again, you know, it's that one of the things where there's enough contrast there that it makes that meaningful. But I also, I mean, we talked about this before. I've been thinking about it a lot because I just, um, I had somebody take my near <laughs> win on the last convergence just away from me, like strip mm-hmm. it from me, um, even though I had earned it uh, for three months. <laughs> and uh uh even though that like i didn't advance right Right. even though that might feel bad for somebody and we we worried about that throughout the campaign is like what if somebody doesn't get their convergence is that gonna make them like you know toss their toss their army in the bin or or you know just not come but i i really like that there's just that little bit of a of a risk or a high stake or that it's something i can't just have but I can prepare for it. Like I can do something about that. And that, that difference feels important enough. One aspect of that is because it's, it's something I can plan for compared to the regular games where, you know, again, it's random. So I'm not held account as accountable for what game it is, whether or not it's an easy one or a hard one, I can just play it and not worry about it. Um, I'd be interested in what a game would be like though, if you switched deployment and victory you do the terrain and then you pick a victory and then you do deployment and then the twist yeah my instinct dude make that priority role so much more important because uh yeah you can have a really you can have a really good deployment for one victory condition and um you'll be you could like see that pretty quickly i'm like i'm pretty happy with the way it is for sure. Likewise. Yeah. Um, I just think that there's there's enough mechanics there. Like there's enough framework that if you change something, you quickly know what you're in for, if that makes sense. Like you you can kind of know if I change this do- dial, I'm, I'm going to have a different experience. And that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't played any match play. Um, we've played some multiplayer Triumph and Treachery, um, which changes some of the kind of the you know, a priority sequence, it isn't something that you can give away, right? If you won the priority, you take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just a lot of things that happen when you have a third person on the table and, and maybe they gang up on you like jerks. <laughs> we haven't uh, had that happen yet. I don't think, so. <laughs> no, no, we haven't. <laughs> um, but we, we don't have as much uh, to talk about there. Triumph and Treachery, the one thing I would say, and I hope they come up with sometime, is um, a lot more backstabbing type of mechanics, uh, like the Triumph and Treachery game from Eighth Edition had, where you could uh, somebody could try and make a decision, but if you had the right token or the right card, uh, you could play it and interrupt and make them do something different. Things like that were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's more open play, um, f- crazy stuff. There's. I don't know if strategy is even a word that you can use in those games. Well, actually, there, there's one thing. You know, in the Triumph and Treachery, one thing we didn't do right when I was reading through this again is, you know, the, in Triumph and Treachery, there's a victory condition, but there's also a hidden agenda where there's six additional victory conditions that your warband can choose. And we rolled off when we played our games, but apparently you can choose that. And so I think in those cases, you can affect your strategy and your tactical situation a little bit by choosing one that you prefer or your warband is more successful at. So that could change how things play out next time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good, good point. Anything else you guys want to add or experiences that have come out of this? Uh, I just wanted to mention that, you know, even just this past week, I saw some 
some new victory conditions or new twists come up that I hadn't seen before. So, you know, I really enjoy the the random nature because I'm still seeing stuff that I hadn't seen before. And like, oh, wow, how, how would I play with that game? You know, <laughs> so, so it's been kind of fun. No, that's a good point. I had, I had been looking through some of the different victory conditions for the upcoming event and seen some of the different types, objective types, treasure types, um, area, either Weather. control or, or, you know, covering space and then, um, kill types. Um, but I haven't, I haven't played all of those and, you know, Paven, this one that we had to play, I hadn't played that before and it was refreshing. It was really like, there's a lot of so much variety in this deck. And like I said, I think that really is a defining characteristic of, of Warcry. Um, Paven, any last uh, thoughts? Nah. Way, way, to dis- way to disappoint the fans. Uh, <laughs> there's more where that came from. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. All right, let's jump into the battle round phases. Uh, Paven, do you want to cover those uh, high level for us? Uh, thankfully, these are written down because I always have to look them up, uh, figure out which round, what, what happens first. But it starts with the hero phase. Uh, then we move into the reserve phase, followed by the combat phase. And those repeat throughout the game in the battle rounds. Um, and then once the game is over, then we have the aftermath phase. Cool, cool. All right, hero phase. Uh, the hero phase, now this is one that takes a little bit. We start off the game with the priority roll, which is just this uh, one dice, one d6 roll to decide kind of who gets to de- choose some aspects of the battle plan cards. Then once we get, we have all that set, even even game playing field, now we want in our initiative roll. This is the 6d6 roll. You roll six dice um, and uh, look for, for pairs, look for triples look for quads etc and singles um and the this is a defining characteristic or or mechanic for Warcry. um what was interesting is that we've seen that a couple of other places the disciples of zinch aos army gets to roll some dice and depending on what they roll can use those during the game fate um, dice fate yeah. dice and then uh, also in warhammer quest silver tower um similarly each round you roll these dice and when you have a uh, multiples of one type you take them away and and the singles all become a kind of a dice pool that the players can use to kind of use their abilities um so this mechanic has been kind of tested in other places um but it, it i feel like it really comes into its own here in in Warcry. did you think uh paven that we would rely so heavily on these dice and our our ability cards or do we rely that heavily on them well i do um yeah they're a really cool um mechanic for letting you to have like sweet moves to use during the game and there's like a nice bit of variation and kind of levels of complexity to work off with the hero dice like you have a trade-off between like the number of abilities you can use and whether you have priority or not like sometimes priority is not a big deal sometimes it's a huge deal um, like if you're like two leaders are locked in combat and they're both pretty bloody, it's going to be the next one to strike is probably going to kill the other one. Yeah, those are all my thoughts, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Josh. How about you? Has how has the the ability dice um, and uh, you know getting the doubles or the quads that you want impacted your games? How important have they become? Yeah, no, I, I love the balance of um, you know if you've got a a role where you've got lots of uh, replicates of dice, doubles, triples, and quads. Uh, okay, you know you've got something awesome coming, 
but you have less of a chance of choosing initiative. So, you know, in some games, like the game Paven and I had, where I should have used my wild die, you know, I should have made an extra single so that I could have grabbed initiative and, and done that. So I have found that there are certain games where, oh, yeah, whoever's got the most singles assigns the wild die, and, and sometimes it's really important to find out what they're going to do with that wild die so you can decide what you're going to do. And then there are other occasions where it's like, oh, I really need to use my wild die to win initiative, and I should have done that, and that would have helped me in this game. Or, you know, do use it for an ability, because I really need that triple so I can teleport my, you know, shadowy recall across the board. So, you know, it, it's fun because it adds a huge tactical element to the game with just these six dice that you're rolling and then the wild dice that you're assigning. And so it, it's been a lot of fun for me. Very cool. Yeah, I there the, the abilities really add character to each of the models, the fighters. Um, and you really see that come to its own, too, with the allies um, in the, the Monsters and Mercenaries book where kind of taking one of these allies is kind of dependent on how cool their ability or abilities are and what they add to your warband. I find that there are some rounds where I have I have no doubles or I have no abilities to use or I have one. You know, I roll a double and then I, uh, you know, I have all singles and I can't do much with it. And so I have to work without that as a resource and there are other rounds where i will have uh you know an embarrassment of doubles or riches uh and i don't use them all for whatever reason i forget you know maybe it's because i just don't need it Um, i don't need to move my model an extra you know one inch per per move activation um or i'm not in a place like first round um I don't find it as useful to have a lot of abilities first round. Mm-hmm. And so I often save my wild dice and just take what I get. So I find myself sometimes to the detriment, sometimes the advantage where I'm not trying to, I'm trying not to rely too heavily on the abilities coming my way to, you know, what plan my strategy or think about what I'm doing. Um, I can almost always rely on, you know, at least one um, uh, beast speaker where I, you know, whip the dog and make them attack again if I can get in the right position. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the harpoon being able to yank somebody off is harder to get. Um, and, and oddly, I've gotten um, uh, quads the last three games where I've just souped up my um, leader. But in this last game, it didn't matter that much. Um, uh, I took out, I did take out one squig with him, uh, but he just kind of stood in the middle, the, you know, the last round. So, um, you know, it's one of those where the they add so much flavor, and when they when they serve the right purpose at the right time in the right round, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it but you can't you can't bank on it. Yeah, um, no, I think I think that's especially true since you can only assign one wild die per die combo. You can't add two wild dice to make a triple out of a single, for example. And so, even yeah. though you may have you've been saving your wild die, you're limited to by what you rolled. You can only make a double, maybe, if you roll a bunch of singles. You can't get that triple by adding two, so it, it can influence that. Are there any abilities that, if you don't get them in a game, they, they tank your army or make them disproportionately worse? Or are there any um, that, if you get that, automatically changes the game? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's that one for you, Pavin? <laughs> yeah, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know the name of it, but it's the um, it's the Gloom Spike Quad. Oh yeah, I'm fishing for that bad boy all game. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very it's a very powerful ability. It combines rampage, which is the 
generic quad, which is also very strong. And you should think about like always if you have a triple, always going for that quad anyway, because it gives you a bonus move and then a bonus attack. Yeah. And that bonus move is super valuable because if you're out of range, it can bring you in range. So you can have like three attacks going out, um, which is just very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the Gloom Spite ability goes, it adds even another um, uh, strength to that. So everything's the same, except um, on that first bonus attack, you get to add the value of the die to the damage of every hit and critical hit. <laughs> so if you're rolling like four attack dice and three hit and you rolled a, I don't know, a quad three, um, you're adding nine more damage to that attack. Mm-hmm. Um, so very strong. There was some of like general community like uh, like uh, controversy whether that was the appropriate reading of that card, but they clarified it. That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, um, definitely. And, uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. very good. Yeah, no, I'd say the the quads for most are are, are pretty useful. Um, you know, and for the cipher lords, you get the free move and attack, which is very nice, especially since I can typically use it with a champ with a two inch range. Or even you know one of the other mirror blades, and so it can help you take out multiple models at once. For the legions of Nagash, they he gets to it's a Don's macabre, so he can move multiple models, get an extra action, either a move or an attack. You know it could be up to six, so it can be quite powerful depending on what the combination is. But um, for the cipher lords, I'm often often fishing for triples because the sh- triples give me the shadowy recall, where my champ or my my you know, my luminate or my thrallmaster can teleport a model. Um, adjacent to them within a certain range, or my Thrallmaster can use, um, you know, an alchemical, you know, bomb essentially to reduce everybody's attacks by one within a six-inch radius. And both of those are really nice depending on the situations I got. So I'm usually fishing for a triple, but the quads are really nice when they come. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I ran through all the ones that I like. I think. Um, the doubles are probably the mainstay, and I, I get them pretty easily in the, that Beast Speaker and Rock Tusk Prowler combo. If you come across Untamed Beasts and you can take out the Beast Speaker, uh, you've done a lot of work to weaken the, the army. So, um, uh, But yeah, so I think that's one where without that or without the Beast Speaker, you know, there's just fun stuff that you're missing out on. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's the initiative role. It's fun. It's cool to add up those thing, the the you know pair them together and see which uh, how many singles you have, who has the most. Um, I found myself even adding um, uh, kind of doing this, adding a single to get that initiative. So I'm using all aspects of it. There's not a part of it that feels out of place or um, weak, you know. Um, and so I dig that. Now the the next phase. The reserve phase is one that kind of gets mixed up. Where do we put it? Where does it go? But it comes right after we roll dice, after we know what we have in our um, repertoire as far as abilities, which things do we have you know, on the cards, and then we set up whether that's a round two reserve or a round three. The deployment cards determine whether or not you, you bring in you know, your hammer, your shield first. Typically, it's giving you spots to deploy, and that could either be a point on the board, six inches from, a, from an edge, eight inches from an edge, and then that point, you can deploy within three inches of that point. Um, or sometimes it'll pick a whole edge or half of an edge, and you can deploy anywhere um, along that line and then three inches from that edge. 
So there's a lot of spaces or chunks of the board that the deployments kind of give you flexibility in. Um, so we're bringing in reserves, uh, round two, round three. Josh, what's your favorite thing about reserves? What frustrates you the most? <laughs> um, well, I think it's, um, I mean, the deployment cards are always interesting because you never know what you're going to get. And so, like you said, you can be, you know, you get the deployment, you put everything down, and then you get the victory condition. And you're like, oh, dang, if I had been the other color, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> if I, you know, my reserves are coming in over there, then this 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 would be a lot easier. So um, I think it's interesting, but it can be extremely challenging at times. Um, but one of the things I've learned a lot about reserves is that. You know, there are times where you really want to deploy up on that edge of that deployment, you know, when you're coming in on the reserve because you really have to rush that objective or you got to cut someone off. And then there are other times where you're trying to keep them alive because they're like, oh, you got to kill my hammer, but they're not coming in until round three. All right, how do I, you know, what's the most conservative deployment I can do? How can I save that model or where can I run them? Or, you know, so it's nice because, you you know, again, based on the cards, you never know what you're going to get. And so you, you can really alter the the situation the reserves can be can impact you a lot or they can impact you a very little you know and, and it's kind of fun to see how that changes based on the game how about you Paven? are there any uh, parts of the reserve that makes or breaks your effectiveness on the board one thing to think about is that if something's coming in on the third round it has depending on whether the how long the game goes it may only have like one or two activations before the end of the game so like think you can think you know that from turn one like generally how long the game's going to last and um, how many activations you'll get so that like think about what you want those guys to do um, another thing that i've noticed is that the reserve when you come in on a board edge on a long board edge that gives you a lot of flexibility um, because it's three inches out that like save that decision towards later in the game and it really like allows you to like you know gives you a lot of options for where to put your guys yeah i think that aspect of a third round reserve really affects the game uh really affects you know especially if it's my hammer and my i've got one rock tusk prowler and my leader coming in third round that's two rounds or let's say let's say the first round is all movement that's at least one round where I'm not getting any of those activations or uh, letting them be effective at killing something uh, to, to lessen my opponent's uh, number of activations. And that's, that can be tough. And so, but that's also part of the reason why, I mean, I really like that that's in there because it just throws the type of wrench in that you can't always plan for. And so even if you've tooled your list up, um, you can't predict that, you know, and you can't, you have to you have to play through. Yeah, well, I think it's fun too because you know you may set up your models and you're like, oh, I've got to keep in mind round two, my enemy's models are coming in behind me, you know, so I can't stay here. I got to move somewhere <laughs> else, you know. So, so it yeah. really forces you to be more dynamic on the field as well. You know, Paven had uh, so we both had a round two uh, deployment and we had uh, got to put Furies on the table for. Um, chaotic beasts and uh i just put him over by his deployment as a welcoming committee um, i thought it was a <laughs> thought it was a really nice really nice thing to do um and to to kind of make sure that they saw them right away um but you know it's things like that where they, there's just other things you can play with and other tactics you can use to to kind of determine how things are going to go mm-hmm. built-in slowdown right um <laughs> Now, the next phase we're going to cover is the combat phase, but I want to take a quick break uh, 
so that we can, and then we can come back, talk to you about kind of the biggest phase in the game uh, and break down probably more tactics here than anywhere else. Uh, but we'll see how that goes. So we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Thanks again for subscribing to Dogs of Warcry. We hope that our love for the Age of Sigmar setting comes through in all of our podcasts that you listen to. Whether it's the Mortal Realm story phase, our Underworlds podcast, What the Hex, or this little gem. If so, consider dropping a tip over at themortalrealms.com forward slash Patreon. Thanks. Welcome back. And finally, well, not finally, that's the wrong word. Next. Maybe something we've all been waiting for a little bit is talking about the combat phase uh, because this is where our models get to act. This is where they get to move. This is where they get to hack each other apart into pieces, spread blood all over the floor, make place just a mess full of carnage. Let's, let's back it off, ease it off. Um, now, the, the combat phase is where actions are, we, our models get to take actions. Um, and we're primarily talking about four types of actions. That's what the rules give us. They give us a move action. You can take an attack action. You can take a disengage action and a wait action. For an activation, you get two actions and you can take any one of these uh, twice or make one of uh, one of one kind and one of another kind. Um, and during an activation, you can use an ability. Let's start with uh, the move action. Uh, Paven, how important is movement, uh, Mr. Squig Hopper, Squig Squad, squigs in my face all the time? <laughs> so it's pretty important. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's. I would say this is a more of a movement game than anything else. Like, you really need to, like, position your guys in a strategic and uh, intelligent way. Um, I think important considerations when thinking about your movement is, like, your threat ranges. So where you can, like, move and attack. And your opponent's threat ranges. So, like, if you move into somebody, they're going to get, you know, a bunch of free attacks or a bunch of, like, you know, they can double attack you. So you don't have to move and attack. Um, other things to consider are, um, like, jamming up your opponent. So just putting guys in their face that they have to deal with. Maybe, you know, some of your planes runners or your grots that aren't necessarily important pieces. But, you know, it prevents them from, like, capturing objectives, grabbing treasure, getting off the board or what have you. So those are kind of the, some high-level tips on uh, movement. No, I think, um, you know, we talking about um, clogging up people when we had Chaotic Beasts as our twist last night. Um, the Furies, we primarily use them to kind of use their either 8-inch move or 16-inch double move to get right next to each other's models so that they'd either have to attack them and deal with them and use up an activation or have to use a disengage. Uh, before making a move action, therefore not being able to move to an enemy and take an attack action. Um, so there was a lot of that with uh, with the Furies and, and that sort of thing uh, going on. Yeah, the, the caginess of, uh, you know, do I take my first action to go all the way over to my, my enemy uh, with a movement and make one attack action, knowing I'm not going to be able to kill them, maybe I'm just putting some wounds on them, but I'm going to get my, you know, get a ton of attacks back on me and probably die. Is that the right trade-off? Um, those sorts of things. So how do you bait people into, into moving where you want the move or uh, getting to the part of the board you want to be on in the second round or in the third round? In the movement phase, we've got the moving, we've got climbing, we've got jumping, and we've got falling. 
Um, how many of those do the Cypher Lords ignore? Uh, well, you know, they don't ignore <laughs> all of them. We have certain abilities that allow us to fly at times, which, you know, the squigs get to do, you know, the squig hoppers get to do all the time. But, um, yeah, I, and, and it can be extremely important. You know, I found there are some missions that I have won because I've been able to, you know, if there, somebody's after my dagger, I can use a double and have them fly in a movement phase and get up on a vertical distance and get farther away from them. And, and you know, other models have to climb, you know, and maybe they can't make the full climb in a single turn. So they've got to spend their whole move climbing and then get to the top. Or maybe they climb to do an attack and then they fall down, you know. So I found there's a, you know, it's one of my favorite phases because it's so dynamic. You're, you're doing so many different things. You can move and jump. You can climb and jump. You can climb and then move. And then depending on what you've done, you may end up falling or you may take uh, dangerous terrain damage by moving over spiked fences. And you know, But you can also use the movement to kind of block off the, the top of a building and prevent models from getting up there so they're stuck climbing up with one action, attacking you, and then falling down. You know, So... There's, there's a lot of really unique circumstances that each of the missions can can uh, affect. But uh, the Cypher Lords have been really nice with the Shadowy Recall, where I can just pull a model 12 inches away and put it closer by to you know, either save it or put it into combat for extra attacks. Or using that, you know, my, my quad or my double for, for fly move, which has been extremely helpful for either getting closer, getting up to some vertical distance, or getting away, you know, when I need to get away. So it's been awesome. Yeah, I do love how moving, climbing, jumping, uh, all can be fluid from one to the other. Um, uh, you can, when you're moving, if you know, if you've got five inches of, or let's say eight inches of movement, and you spend three of those climbing, two of those jumping, uh, and then you know the rest of those walking across the the battlefield floor, etc. You've got a lot of just a lot of mobility, which I think is the key to making the terrain feel like a good part of the game and not an, just an obstacle or something in the way. Um, it can be just enough in the way <laughs> when you're trying mm-hmm. to hit something or get line of sight on something or attack something through a barrier or something like that. I I like to err on the side of permissiveness. For instance, there's not anything in the rules that specifically talk about... Um, and this, and maybe you guys would disagree on this, so this would be, could be a good conversation. That the one that kind of gets singled out a little bit, being different from moving and climbing, is that is the jumping. Um, that it's a horizontal move measurement out. If you don't end on a uh, vertical space, a horizontal space, or yeah. a horizontal space, a one one inch a platform, mm-hmm. um, then you fall. You know, when Paul and I were playing, is that we ruled that you could end a jump in a climb position. Um, so you could measure out from a platform to a wall, and instead of ending uh, that activation falling, that you could continue a climb hmm. from there. Um, and I would say, I, I we read it a few times, and it'd be a question for you on whether or not uh, that something is how the rule works, or if it's something that you feel like doesn't fit the spirit of the rule for us it was a scenario of he had somebody on a platform uh there's a pillar between him and where he wanted to jump not a big pillar but just enough to he couldn't draw a straight line to kind of the vertical above the area he wanted to land in jump out to the pillar do a little circumventing of the pillar and then jump again and land right 
and just felt a lot more a lot more parkour, a lot more cinematic than trying to be restrictive on that. So um, have you guys encountered any move, climb, jump kind of uh, interactions that have been uh, difficult or you've had to, or been confusing or not quite worked? Um, I think, well, I mean, it sounds like in, in your situation, I think that the, the current starter terrain in, in most of the other uh, uh, ravaged land sets are all three inches or less. And so, you know, I think the current movement rules as they're written and it just says for jumping, that you just have, if you end in the air, then you fall. So technically, I think you guys are playing it, you know, right, as long as you still had movement left. But I think when you're playing with taller terrain pieces, like the four-inch walls that, you know, that Paul's got together for the Gibbering Dome, having those kind of subtle adjustments is perfect because it makes more sense because you've got much taller distances. And, and certain models, like Legions of Nagash, where they got a three-inch move, you know, they're, they're going to have a much harder time getting over those surfaces. So coming up with some, you know, um, I guess modifications of the current move sets I think makes perfect sense. Um, I, I think in games where I've played, you know, it, movement has been interesting because there are occasions where I go, okay, well, I really need to get over there to that objective, or I need to get to that model. Do I climb down and lose movement, or do I just jump and risk taking falling damage? You know, on that on that dice roll of four or five for one damage, a six for for uh, three damage. You know, but maybe I get there faster and then I can attack that model with my movement. You know, so those are some of the tactical decisions I make with, with that jumping aspect. I don't think it's coming too much of a, of a concern. I think some of the confusion is where some of the starter terrain pieces don't have a platform and people are climbing up and then they're ending their move there. But technically you can't. You've got to keep climbing until you reach a one-by-one surface and then you can stop. And so I think it's, you know, when, as people start learning and, and practicing, and then, then it gets a little easier to say, oh, yeah, okay, I have to keep climbing until I get to a space I can stop. And if I can't, then I fall down. Yeah. And depending on that distance, I, I may take damage or my, my opponent may move me or, or maybe I just drop to the ground because it's, it's less than three inches. So it's fine. I want to highlight two more ideas before we get to falling because I think falling is important and, and um, it's a question we get act, asked a lot is, you know, from uh, players as when it's new, how, do, how does falling work? And so one is the idea of horizontal movement along a wall. Um, so if you climb up a wall, usually, you know, the idea is you're trying to just climb up to the next platform, but if you need to get over dangerous terrain and you want to, and you're next to a wall and you want to climb up the wall, climb, uh, you know, vertically a few inches, um, and then move horizontally a couple inches, you can do that. Um, and then back down, um, uh, if you are pinned against the wall by a model and you want to, obviously if you're have to disengage this doesn't work um but if you are able to go up the wall and then jump over them um that's something that would let you get on the other side of a model or again an obstacle um, without um climbing over top of it i guess uh, where you mm -hmm. land can be important if you land within an inch of that um obstacle and it's dangerous terrain things like that and then the most importantly right that Climbing uh, movement, obviously, you're on the on the on the floor or on a platform, and if you end uh, your movement on a platform, you're fine. If you climb, if you end your first activation in a climbing, you're going up a wall or something like that. You can start your next activation in that action. same spot. Sorry. Action. Yeah, yeah. Next mm -hmm. action in that climbing position. There's a couple other places where uh, where you fall. Well, actually, I don't know. We'll just deal with this. If you end an action in the air, right, 
uh, you've measured out from a jump or you are ending your second action, you're ending your full activation in a climb, then you have to fall. And in the case of both of those, wherever your position is at the end of there, you drop straight down and then you roll for impact damage. Um, and that is a, a D6 on a four or five, you take one damage. On a six, you take three. Um, that's only if it's three inches or more. Uh, correct. You're right. If you're if you're falling from a, a three inch or more uh, s- surface, um, and uh, and typically jumping right now with the the core set, if you're jumping off of that terrain, you're generally going to be taking impact damage or correct rolling for yep. impact damage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a big difference between those two because when you jump and you fall, you take impact damage, but your opponent doesn't get to move your model. However, if you're above three inches, well, whenever you fall, um, you know, if you're climbing and you ended your activation uh, on the wall, you fall, your opponent gets to move your model anywhere within two inches of that spot. So there are, po- there are times where you are climbing, maybe you, you climbed up with one action, you attacked with another action, and then you fall at the end. So you have to decide, okay, is it worth that? Because my opponent gets to move me because I've fallen. You know, and, and is there dangerous terrain nearby, or does he put me on the other side of an objective or not? So weighing whether, you know, jumping, there's no risk besides the impact damage, but falling, your opponent can move your model. So there can be a really big tactical change. You can also fall if somebody is attacking you and has a critical hit, and you're within half an inch of an edge of a platform. In those cases, you roll a die, and on a one, you fall. And then again, your opponent will get to move your model and you roll for impact damage if you're three inches or higher. So those are the, the occasions where falling can, can impact your tactical placement. My two cents, another, or another two cents in here. Um, and so we, I think we just got done discussing how important movement is. And so when you're looking at different members of your war band, really uh, put a high, high value on like a high movement because it allows you to do so many things and have a lot of choices you can make. Um, and it just makes your, that individual fighter more dangerous because they can threaten so much more. Um, and additionally, uh, having fly on top of a fast movement is like a force multiplier because it really, um, you don't have to worry about train at all because you can just get there. And then the other thing I was going to say is like how good movement feels in this game. It feels very um, natural and super permissive in a way that, um, you know, your, your fighters feel like athletic and capable and they're yeah. just like all over this terrain and being able to do what you want to do. And there's not, there's not really, we, we talked about some educa- edge cases here, but there's really like not too many like weird spots. Um, it's generally, if you think you like, if you can imagine your fighter kind of doing it, they can usually do it. Yeah. 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 I agree. One of the, uh, interesting things that, that, uh, Eric and I um, noticed this week when we were looking at some, some different war bands and terrain pieces is that, you know, there are certain warbands which are affected by the terrain and, and movement, or the like Cypher Lords, for example, have certain abilities that allow them to fly, but they're not allowed to move over three inches. So they're kind of limited with the starter terrain. Yes, they can get over all of those pieces, but if there was a four-inch wall, then they wouldn't be able to fly over it, where, you know, the squig hoppers would be able to. And the Corvus Cabal have something opposite, where they get additional damage if they're starting from terrain pieces that are higher up. And so it's interesting how the movement rules can play into what kind of terrain you have and, and elevation can really affect some of the abilities for certain war bands and, and how that's used. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, Pavend, 
your um, squig herd generally has a movement of four. Would you say that is a um, a good movement, a bad movement? How do you generally feel about that? I think four is on the slower side. It's not the slowest. I think three is the slowest. But um, <laughs> yeah. four is like you got to – you're not going to be able to reach out and touch everybody you want to. Um, and so my squigs I generally use for like – jamming up zones and there's enough of them that like you know if i dangle one out there usually the other ones can kind of pounce on you (laughs) is um really the 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 kind of the movers and the shakers are the squig hoppers um and they're the ones that can really go anywhere they want to go and that's one of the reasons maybe this is a, a hot tip for everyone um is i save those activations almost always for last because i want all the information i can before uh before i move them yeah the untamed beasts uh, generally have a movement of five, except for the first fang who has a four. And I find that to be a really great speed for getting um, a lot of places. If I need a double move, I can do ten. I can add one to that for twelve. And twelve inches is a is a good amount of space to cover. And then obviously with the 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 rock test prowler with the eight um, mm-hmm. gives quite a bit as well. So I find five yeah. to be a pretty adequate um, movement speed. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm thinking four inches is probably what you would call average, you know. And then five is, you know, we're on the faster side, and then you know, three, the you got the shambling dead, you know, so they're a little slower. But the night haunter, all five or six, you know, because they're ghosts, they're ethereal. So I think four is, you know, kind of, you know, it's kind of like this in Age of Sigmar too, where it's kind of the average human rate, so to speak. The cipher lords are movement four, correct? They're they're all movement five. Yeah, oh, they are so. great. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, right. you know, and I like it because it kind of fits their high speed and high number of attacks, but very fragile sort of a uh, you know composition. Yeah. So movement is important for everyone because this is a, bro- a board with uh, places you need to be, whether that's be an objective, a treasure, a place on the board, an edge of the board, or to get to another model um, to do something to them. So it's uh, universally important. Uh, and then we get to the attack action. I don't know. Obviously, I mean, this is a, a war game. Uh, attacking other things <laughs> and and killing other things is important. We're all itching to do a little bit of that. And there's two kinds of attacks. There's melee and there's ranged attacks. Paven, real quick, run us through how attacks, the attack action works in Warcry. So attack actions are very simple, and I really appreciate the simplicity here where you just have a few values you're worrying about. You have the number of attacks, which is going to be the number of dice you roll. You have the strength characteristic of the attack, and that is going up against the toughness characteristic of your um, your victim. Uh, so if you are <laughs> higher than a toughness, you're going to need a three or more on a die six. If you are lower than their toughness, you're going to need a five or more. Um, and then if you're equal four or more like 50 50 and so you just roll those dice and if you're successful if you roll um at or below the value then you you're 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 smashing them you're doing damage there's um there's no like if you play other games there's no wound roll there's no save roll like that's it and then you're doing the damage listed on the attack card um and then so you have your regular damage and then if you roll a six to hit you always do your critical damage um and so that would be the second value um, so it feels it's very fast and it feels very satisfying because you're always doing damage. You're rarely whiffing um, and people are are getting pretty bloody pretty quick. The attack action is first and foremost there to kind of peel wounds off something and eventually take something off the board, put it out of action. Josh, uh, Cypher Lords are 
like you talked about, a little bit of a glass cannon. They can come in and do some big damage, but uh, mm-hmm. they don't want to get attacked back. Uh, yeah, so no. <laughs> how important is is uh, managing attack actions for you? Uh, no, it's it's uh, you know I'm still learning. Uh, there's lots lots to learn, I think. And uh, you know one of the first lessons I had was you know Napaven talked about this a little bit is you know forcing your opponent to move towards you so that they only they have to move and then get one attack action. You know get that double attack action. It can make a huge difference between living and dying in a round, and that and that's why I ended up to kind of pushing more towards getting more two-inch range weapons because then I can move and still attack. It, it, it you know kind of extended my threatened range, but it also allowed me to attack models and force them to have to move before they could attack me because they they might have a one-inch range, um, and it helped my fragile guys last a lot longer. Um, you know, the Cypher Lords have a lot of attacks, so you're kind of gambling and hoping for crits or a high number of attacks. And, um, and then you're hoping to finish off a model um, so that you can attack another model in a second action if you needed to or move away, depending on the scenario and circumstances. But uh, there's also the double, which gives you your model an additional attack with any attack with three inches or less, which can be pivotal at times. You know, if the Champion and the Thrallmaster both have five attack space, gives them six attacks, there's a much better chance of taking out a model. Absolutely. I struggled early on with the with the untamed beasts to to kill things, um, and some of it was you know knowing what what models could be effective. Uh, some of it was you know whether or not like again the my heart eater could get someplace and then he would have uh, four attacks, which isn't bad. Um, you know, it's it's swinging, right? It's on uh, strength four, so it's not the strongest. And and you know, often I'm rolling on fours, even with the the heart eater. Um, and so they're none of them are super reliable until you get. I mean, the again, the rock tusk prowler, if they can, uh, you know, do two attacks or two attack actions, and then get um, get to attack again with the beast speaker, then at least you know I'm getting twelve dice into a model or whatever, uh, and it's more likely to take them down. So I do find that I'm uh, looking for criticals more often and I do have kind of that spike damage. A lot of the, my models do five uh, damage on a crit. Um, and then recently my heart eater is, you know, been buffed up with an, you know, a, a greater artifact and um, his quad adds half uh, the dice rounded up um, to his attacks and damage. Um, and so that, becomes a very explosive, you know, high end, but I find I focus more on trying to decrease my opponent's uh, either movement. Mm-hmm. So they, if I put a planes runner up against them, then they have to attack, they may have to attack it or it just negates some movement or trying to make sure I'm kind of focusing and ganging up on, on a model to try and take more wounds off so that eventually I can <laughs> take it off in another round or something like mm-hmm. that. And so, for me, the attacks sometimes feel less important. I'm definitely trying to take other other models off the table because this the attacks and killing things is how you reduce your opponent's activations, which mm-hmm. if you can get an activation advantage, uh, say that three times fast, that's a big advantage on the table. You can't take it for granted that or that attacks are are the most important. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, especially in this last game with Paven, I think it's, it's really changing my attitude too where there wasn't a lot of death. I think, Paven, did we each lose two models? One model? Uh, Eric, I killed half your warband. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's right. Toward that last round, you killed a lot more. Uh, that's right. A lot of my planes runners died. 
<laughs> but that's what I mean too. Is like I my warband dies easily, um, but so I don't always have that attack advantage. But that I don't feel like that takes me out of the game, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you got numbers. You know, the planes runners had a lot of numbers, but they but they do die easily. But again, it's that balance. Yeah. Yep. So. So. So I got a question for you guys, you know, because uh, you know our three forces in particular, you know, we haven't really seen a whole lot of range, you know, anything beyond the three to four inches that you know you kind of get with the standard warbands we've got right now. But you know, for example, Ben, my stepson, has Legion of Nagash, and his Necromancer's got a, a essentially a magical attack, range three to seven, minimum range of three, longest range of seven. It's the only range attack I've really noticed. I haven't played against the Bone Splitters, which have you know a range with some bows and stuff like that. But do you feel like you're missing that? You wish you had some. Would you take an ally with range to help? mitigate some of that or what are your what are you guys' thoughts on that paven how's your uh arrow uh shooters the shooters, shooters. Uh, well, well i have one shooter um he yeah i i don't i can't speak for like the stronger attacks but it seems to me playing playing with my shooter and playing against i think i played some against some idnit that had a lot of bows is that their advantage i mean range is a lot of advantage but you have a lot uh, more options for targets and you can like easily have you know get that double attack without having to worry about the movement too much. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the stats on those attacks aren't very strong, so I found I've gotten a lot of uh, value when I just need to pick off like one damage. When you just need that one damage or three damage, um, usually I can get that with a shooter. But if you're really trying to start getting through like a big ogre brute or a leader, you're just not going to get there with with bow and arrows. Okay. Uh, that might be different for like the Stormcast, who I think have yeah. some very powerful range attacks. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, the Untamed Beasts have uh, the Beast Speaker has a four-inch whip, um, and the First Fang has an eight-inch spear throw. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in, in our last game, the spear throw I was able to take out. It's only two attacks, so it's it's weakened, but it does a two-five mm-hmm. uh, damage profile. Uh, and I took out, uh, you know, that one eight wound grot in two round, two attacks. Um, so what, you know, it was enough to pick off things. Uh, the big thing is his kind of pull. He he has the um, ability to put, yank things off, kind of towards him, and some often off of terrain or off of objectives and that sort of thing, which I find more useful. Right. Uh, but. But he can certainly he does act a little bit as an artillery piece if I can keep him on terrain and away from being in combat he can just kind of take wounds off some stuff um, and that's that's it's pretty great um, and but he's a very slow mover um, so I do I have it um, a little bit arranged for kind of staying away um, and and being able to hit stuff but it's it's kind of mid range right it's not super far away like the stormcast stuff um, right. I. I am. I would love to play Stormcast. Um, since I tend to play new players, I don't think I'll be playing them anytime soon because uh, I don't think that they'd be as fun against a new player. So, well, I think you know some of them. Just talking about the Stormcast, I think some of that was because they were using the double to get the extra attacks with range, which they've changed. So hopefully that's helped mitigate that a little bit. But uh, but yeah, I'll just say since the uh, you know the cipher lords don't really have any range, they you know got two inch range at the glaives and the double bladed swords, the shock roam double is the six inch, you know, so I can get a chance of 
picking mm-hmm. off one wound or or a number of the die. And um, and that's occasionally, like Paven said, it helped me pick off a model that was already you know greatly wounded. But uh, but that's I think that's one thing I would try to maybe mitigate with an ally is okay maybe I'll get a sorcerer so I have some of that extra range or you know something that that helps me reach out and touch someone a little easier. <laughs> I think that that's kind of the nice design. Another thing that's nice about the Chaos Warbands is that they do have some nice mixes um, of a little bit of range here or there, um, but usually keeping it in the kind of four to eight inch. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it doesn't get too far from that. Right. I, when I have range, I use it, if that makes sense. Cool. That, yeah, that no, definitely. We get into a couple of, of actions that uh, have different, I think, uh, probably had a different kind of feel when we started into it than when than we got out of it. And maybe we didn't, uh, we haven't experienced them in other games in the quite the same way. So, Next, we have the disengage action. And this is fairly simple in it, but it's easy to forget. Um, When you start your action within one inch of an enemy model and you want to take a move, in order to move away, you have to take a disengage action. And it limits your, um, your movement to three inches. And it can only be a move. It can't be a climb. It can't be a jump. It can't uh, uh, be anything but uh, a horizontal move. Um, which also means, again, like if you're on a platform, you can't disengage to the battlefield floor. Um, you just have to you have to find a three inch. You have a maximum of three inches, and you have to end up more than one inch away from any enemy models. So you can't disengage from one uh, to go and attack another. You can't disengage one to jump off of a platform. You can't you can't reposition yourself next to a different enemy model. It definitely feels like a, a strong limitation. Does it feel as bad to have to disengage as as you thought it would, Pavend? Um, does it feel as restrictive as it sounds when you play the game? Um, you can usually, you can uh, often, you're able to disengage. So you're often not trapped. But it does, um, there is a penalty for running away, and I appreciate that. And it allows you to, you know, make the choices to try to, like, gum up your opponent and keep them off of objectives or keep them off of important fighters. Yeah. Josh, how are you using disengage uh, to your advantage, or or does it tend to just be a negative that you have to deal with? No, I, I use it all the time in certain scenarios to, you know, throw a model in there to slow down the opponent, uh, to keep them from getting to uh, an objective or another model of mine. Um, and I also try to use my two-inch range movement on certain models to give me that distance so that I can still attack and not have to disengage to move away because I have a movement of five. There are certain armies like the Legion of Nagash where they have a three-inch move anyway. They suffer no penalty whatsoever. But for uh, the rest of it, you know, our warbands in particular, most of them have more than a three-inch move. And so a disengage can slow us down or really alter our strategy a bit. So, And the fact that it, it limits you to a horizontal movement and you can't climb or jump or any of those things can, can certainly play a, a critical role in certain scenarios. Josh, when you're using your two inch, uh, reach weapons and you get in there to do an attack and avoid being engaged yourself, um, is it frustrating when the opponent just moves away from you and, and doesn't have any penalties because you aren't engaged with them? Does that come up often? I wouldn't say it. It's frustrating, but it, it certainly affects my tactical decision. Sometimes I have to decide, okay, is it more important for me to slow them down or is it more important for me to move in, attack, 
and then maybe reduce their number of attacks, you know, not knowing whether they're going to come forward or whether they're going to move away. But it, but yeah, certain missions, it's like, okay, I've got to get in there. I've got to slow them down, even though I put my model at high risk. And that's where that's where I really like having the Fury, because it's a disposable model, 8-inch range, flies. I could throw it in there and then catch up with my other models. But, but yeah, it, it certainly affects my decision on whether, okay, yeah, is, he's going to be able to get away. But, you know, I need my model a little bit longer, so I'm going to do that instead. So Yeah. I do think that positioning, if you're going to have a model that is positioned to force a disengage, you can, uh, depending on where you put them, uh, put them in more of a corner or, you know, cause them to disengage in a direction that's less convenient for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or if you can uh, have more than one model um, kind of pinning them, then that gives them fewer options to disengage. Um, so I, th- I think, I, I think with more time I'll be able to use it more effectively. Um, if I'm thinking about it, but, uh, but yeah, I do find it inconvenient to have to disengage. Um, yeah, because there... I, I think, I think that, well, I was going to say that I think because I'm often trying to get someplace, I'm, it's not always as effective for me to attack, um, and so, uh, I want to get someplace else and that just takes, you know, a couple inches off my movement or forces me to disengage in a weird angle before taking my full movement uh, on right. the second action. And so I, I dislike it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have found, um, we didn't really touch on this yet, but if you are engaged with the model in your movement phase, you can move and not disengage as long as you stay as close as or closer to that model and so there are occasions where i've been engaged with the model and you know in 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 an attempt to slow the rest of their forces down i'll i'll move and then make sure i'm within engagement range of of another model so i've effectively forced two of their models to disengage if they want to move anywhere and then you know and try to get in an attack you know instead of getting two attacks sometimes that optional movement to to slow down your opponent is, is more beneficial so clarifying, you can make a move action if you're engaged within one inch of enemy model by just moving around them and staying equal or closer than where you started. Exactly. Cool, cool. Uh, any any other kind of ideas or thoughts or tactics or advice on disengage? I just want to put a kind of a rule. Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is a clarification, but a disengage action is not a move action proper. Um, so abilities and cards that affect move actions do not affect disengage actions unless they explicitly say so. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right, let's get to the wait action, which is a very new, uh, you know, we don't have this sort of thing necessarily in any other games. And at first I didn't, I didn't know how powerful it could be or all the ways that I could use it. Uh, you have two actions during your activation and you can wait during either of them, if you take a wait action during your first action, then uh, you stop your, your activation and that model can then be activated later in the turn and they get one action with that activation. If you take your second action as a wait action, which is basically like a, I don't have anything to do, <laughs> then you're, you, you end there as well. This one I think is a really interesting one. Like we, I, I think we've all grown in how we use it. Let's go back to first impressions of it. Um, you know, Josh, what when you first heard of this as you know in the rules and read it, and you're like, okay, what's 
That's the wait action. What were some of the first impressions you had of how it might be used or what it was supposed to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, at first I didn't really think it was going to be very useful at all because most of the game has been, okay, you want to move, you want to attack, you want to do these kinds of things. And then um, I think my first impression was, okay, they they essentially put this in here if you've got nothing to do or in the case where you want a model to use two abilities. So normally models can only use one ability. However, if you wait, you can do an ability before you wait and then another ability after. And it would be the only time that a model can use two abilities unless it's the last man standing. So initially, that's that's what I thought the wait was for. But, you know, it's tactically, it, it, I've seen people use it very effectively. How about you, Paven? What was what was your initial impression of the wait? Uh, my initial impression of the wait was, yeah, it would seem like there would be a rule like this in the book um, <laughs> to allow you to hold, hold an action and wait for later. Um, to jump off of Josh's point, and I don't want to get too far ahead of us, is that it's very useful, or like in games of Warcry, you're often playing activation chicken with your opponent. Like yeah. you both have like your your big bad boys in the back waiting to smash something, but if you move them too early, they're just going to get counterpunched too hard. And so you're both kind of like moving pieces that aren't too too important uh, around the periphery, kind of waiting for the one for the other, your opponent to make their first move. Um, and waiting is one way that you can add like another level of because it allows you to double your number of activations and like spend more time kind of stalling. Yeah. And in, in fact, we, we kind of talked about this uh, briefly, but uh, at the end of our game Pavend uh, last night, uh, it came down to activations early on in that third round, which was the last round of our, our game. You took out two fighters with your first activation, which immediately took my number of activations down. Uh, below yours um and so that's you know you you flipped the table on me i thought i was starting confident with more activations being able to because it was my i needed the last turn to try and you know uh make every effort i could to win um and then uh, uh but then the other part of that is i could have done more weight actions throughout that that turn because um, even though I moved the you know beast speaker over to help the rock tusk make another attack, that was not that useful other than a little bit of a bluff. Um, if she had waited, that would have helped me um, to to get the last activation right and be able. Now that's not to say you wouldn't have figured out which quadrant I needed to be in and move your squig rider anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it would have changed the dynamic and the decision-making, right? Although I think if you had started just waiting randomly, I would have gotten very suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> this is unrelated to the wait action, but I was just thinking about our game. <laughs> One thing you could have done, getting into my head, is you could have dangled your heart eater out in the middle of all my squigs, and that would have been too juicy of a target not to try to kill for the glory. <laughs> and then I definitely would have tried to bounce that's my squig onto him, like my squig hopper that ended up winning me the game. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because I was definitely playing for points at that per- that point because I thought I had it so in the bag. Yeah. Uh, well, in in fact, uh-huh. I did the opposite. Um, I uh, used one of his activations to wait. His first activation, his first action to wait, and then I uh, used the quad on him to make him really strong, uh, yeah. and and made you f- not want to attack him. Um, yeah. I was thinking on that third turn, you could have just put him right in the middle of everybody. And then I'm like, oh, man, I can just squig this guy down. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Next time. Uh, 
yeah, you're right though. If I used the weight too many times and you would have been like, okay, who is he waiting on and who is he, could he have activated, um, and narrowed down who was important and who wasn't. I think that's probably a good thing to, to say that if you're going to do that weight action game, you probably have to do it with your first few models, uh, which is a trade off when you were, you know, if you need to position something or get a few more things going, um, but it's also interesting to me where this this part of the game might go in terms of if everyone's thinking about um, wait early so that you can have the best activation later, right? So if I wait, are you thinking about doing a wait action in order to counter my imbalance that I've just created? Um, and so is everybody waiting until the last ones to make the big hit? And then uh, <laughs> do you start punching early, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of thing. So... I, it, it is a much bigger dynamic than I thought it was going to be, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's definitely one that I haven't really used a lot yet, <laughs> except for I think there's one occasion where I wanted my Thrallmaster to use two abilities. That's yeah. the only time I've done it, you know, unless I couldn't do something. But mm-hmm. I've seen other people use it very effectively, and it's like and it made me reconsider. Like, oh, you know, I really should try to play that game a little bit. You know, when especially when I'm down models, like you said, try and try and balance out the activation sequence. Yep. Yep. Are there any things, um, any tips or tricks that kind of change depending on whether or not you're playing the objective game, whether you're playing the kind of treasure grab and, and hold, whether you're playing the kill their dagger or kill their shield or whatever, kill their hero, assassinate, whatever. Are there any things that come out in terms of how you're playing, how you're thinking that pop up because of those that we haven't covered? Yeah, I would say something to think about is you often don't have to fight to win and fighting would actually like make it harder to win. Like if you were the warband that's like running away or whatever, um, or that needs to burn all the objectives like you like fighting is just going to kind of prevent you from doing those things. But it's more fun to fight. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that is true. You know, and I think the only thing I would add is that, um, in, in my experience, it's been, you know, you can never predict what's what the scenario and everything is going to be, and, and that changes a lot of, of what you decide to do. But I think learning what certain warbands can do has been extremely helpful for me, because there are certain scenarios, you know, for example, the Legions of Nagash, if they have a triple, they can bring a model back, and that can, you know, if you're trying to kill the dagger, and they keep bringing that dagger back, you, you'll never win. And so there are certain warbands where you learn to watch okay what abilities do they have does he have a triple no i'm gonna pounce and kill that dagger this turn you know so that i can win because otherwise he, if he gets a triple next turn he can bring that dagger back and then i've lost you know i can't win or you pounce on the necromancer to prevent him from being able to do that but there are other warbands like the unmade which have an ability to, to scare you and you can't move you know so then you know as you slowly learn what these warbands can do can really change your strategy in certain missions. Like, I've got to flee from this guy, but each of these unmades can use a double to make my guy not be able to move this turn. And it really changes how you move that model and, and how you block, perhaps, or, or play the game. Yeah, very cool. And, uh, you know, I'll say is I love that this is a narrative game that has a ton of narrative cues and signals um, throughout the rosters and not knowing what your game's going to be and letting it just kind of come to you and, and take the ride and make up the story that goes with it, um, or having the story on the cards. Um, but at the same time you can, uh, (laughs) you can pour over an activation 
and and just hem and haw and be like, what am I going to do? And and bring such a tactical, strong tactical um, decision making to this game, mm-hmm. uh, which is a ton of fun and and was very unexpected for me. Now let's talk about the aftermath sequence. This is only applicable when we're playing in campaigns, when we have a quest and we're playing against other people who are in the campaign. Um, but it has a, a number of kind of elements of strategy or playing the game that we want to cover. Um, so, uh, Josh, why don't we go each of these one by one, or if you want to cover all, f- all five of these before we, uh, pick out each of them, um, go ahead, but why don't you get us started with, uh, uh, kind of that first step. Sure, definitely. Um, so again, you know, the aftermath phase only affects the, your warband if you're in a campaign game, and the reason for that is because in the campaign you're advancing in a quest and you've got certain goals and objectives. And each game you get a certain number of glory points. Uh, everybody automatically gets one for playing in that game. If you win the, that particular game, you get five glory points, and then you get a glory point for killing the opponent's leader, and then you get one for killing a third, another one for killing two thirds, or a third one for killing. All the whole warband. And those glory points are used in a variety of ways to increase warband numbers or let you roll additionally on the on the uh, artifact table. Um, after In the aftermath sequence, you also roll to see if the models out of action have completely died or if they lose favor, if they've lost the destiny level. Uh, for those models that are still on the table, you'll roll a d6, and on a 6, that model gets a destiny level. And that is essentially... Uh, the favor of the gods uh, looking on that model, and they get one re-rolled attack roll uh, die you know, per game uh, on a continual basis for each destiny level they have. And then you roll for a lesser artifact. And in most cases, you'll get something. Occasionally, you find nothing but dust. Um, and then, of course, as, as you proceed in your quest, uh, you will collect uh, command traits and, uh, and artifacts of power, which are more powerful than the lesser artifacts as you go through. But again, these are all there's added elements narratively to the growth and development of your warband. Uh, so let's talk about glory points. When you're uh, when you're grabbing glory points, either from well, primarily from your uh, performance on the battlefield, you have a d- number of different ways to to use them to spend them. Um, the like as you mentioned, um, do you use some to increase your um, number of artifact rolls. You get one, you know, an, an additional artifact roll uh, to add to your warband. Do you wait until you're in the the priority phase where you need to choose your warband so that you muster them for the game, and you can spend to add more points on the table? If your opponent has more territories than you, you can spend that, um, or to buy territories when you have ten points. Josh, you pretty much stuck to the buy territories when you can. Mm-hmm. Paven, did you spend any to search artifacts or to change how many points you're putting on the table against an opponent? No, I did not. I felt I always felt like buying territories was the most satisfying thing to do because it felt like you were really both like narratively increasing your influence, but also like you got to play with more toys in your games. Um, I was also never so behind where I felt like I had to spend the points to catch up, but that would I think, be re- reasonable to do. Uh, well put. Taking it personal. Taking it personal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, so I had a couple occasions. One, I had um, lost a couple people or I had just not had enough games where I was getting enough artifacts um, or maybe I just forgot them. Um, but I did, I did spend once to, 
to roll some more uh, for more artifacts and end up, you know, just again, kind of just giving me a, f- a few more tactics or abilities or advantages in there. Um, and artifacts, they, they are, I feel like there's really good use of tiers of usefulness or, or levels of usefulness. Whereas like the abilities mm-hmm. are almost like, I would say they're 75% of the time there's a use for them. Right. Yeah. Um, the artifact, the lesser artifacts seem like maybe 25% of the time there's a use for them. Sometimes they take an activation or an action and you don't mm-hmm. want to use that action on them. Uh, sometimes they are just inherent for sure. And they just give you a bonus, but then it's, it goes away. And so, um, or, you know, you, somebody is slain and you lose it. Um, so it does a really good job. The lesser artifacts of adding just a little bit of potential usefulness. Um, and then I did one time, I think one time, maybe twice. Um, I know at least one time against Josh where I was, um, down quite a few points and I boosted it up in order to give myself enough advantage on my convergence. No, that wasn't a, it wasn't a convergence game. It was a different one, but, but no, I ended up winning that one. No. So it never worked for me. Fine. Fine. (laughs) I think there are occasions where you could spend the one like you did to get 50 points. And I think, in one of our podcasts, you talked about maybe you should have spent three to get a hundred points, right? And then right. you would have had an extra body on, which 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 probably would have made a difference in that particular game, actually. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, um, it does seem like getting your territory is the better use um, of that. It it gives you, um, you know, again that extra fifty points to put on the table, and it's cu- accumulative. Um, it unlocks thralls so that you can put that. Is it, are the Furies fifty points? They're seventy. Seventy points. So if you if you don't have any models that are as cheap as that, easy to put those in, um, and give you that extra movement and stuff. Um, but you never know. Once in a while, you're up against the wall, and one of those other choices looks pretty tempting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe you'll use it, and maybe it'll be great. So um, I think more games will tell, or more campaigns will tell. And I think, uh, you know, especially with monsters and mercenaries, well, now we've got you, you, a minimum requirement of dominated territories to be able to do some of those challenge battles and stuff. You definitely see people doing that more. But I think you're right. In cases where maybe you just haven't been fortunate enough to win, you know, a couple of games, even having, you know, one to three allows you to add some additional points. So maybe to win that game and get you the five glory points for winning a game. And get you that leg up, you know. So at least yeah. it's that, that flexibility is there, which is nice. Yeah. Um, and then uh, destiny levels. How often? Like I, I've mentioned, lamented, uh, not <laughs> getting many. Uh, and then all of a sudden, in the last few games, I have uh, one planes runner who has three destiny. Uh, nice. And, and my my heart uh, eater has one destiny, so I've got a little bit of a boon there. Mm-hmm. Um, how often are these coming up for you guys? How often are they clutch those rerolls? Oh, uh, I, you know, there's been games where I've gotten like one or two and there's been games where I've gotten none. And, uh, unfortunately I often forget to use it. So I need to come up with a better way to remind myself when I'm attacking with the model, like, Oh yes, I got a reroll. Do I want to use it now? Or do I need to save it? Um, and no cases that I have a model with more than one destiny level, but I know, like, for example, my son, stepson, ran 
he had two models that had three each, you know, so it was just crazy. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it all depends. How about you, Paven? Are those rerolls coming in handy? Uh, yeah, they're helpful. It's nice to have some way to track that your your individual members are getting more, uh, getting stronger and, and are able to affect kind of the games. Actually, you know, it's, it, it's meaningful, but not, it doesn't feel overpowered. I often save them at a point where I really, you know, you just kind of want to, you're just really close to finishing off a model, but can't quite get there. Or I use them in conjunction with the quad for um, Gloom Spite. That is like each attack is actually worth a lot of damage. So saving a reroll for that is good. And, and sometimes your squig herder just gets three destiny and then you're like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> He's favored by yeah. Gorka Morka. <laughs> uh, uh, those campaign rewards uh, that I almost got one of, you remember uh, finishing my campaign um, that Josh almost. did, but, but nobody else did. Um how are, you know, and we read through a bunch of those in our um, kind of the questing and all those options to, to, to bring on with the Monsters and Mercenaries. Those feel like pretty strong uh, character defining and, and strategy defining items. Um, how are you feeling? First, of all, I guess we've just got the artifact of power and command trait from, uh, from your first campaign, Josh. Is that feeling like it's adding a specific character or strategy to your thrall master? Um, well, you know, I think everybody, you know, everybody gets at least one artifact of power going through the campaign quests, which is nice, That's you true. know, and, and, um, and I think it's, you know, one of those things too, where you can decide to roll or you can decide to pick. And, um, and, and I think in my cases, I decided to roll each time. Uh, the, the one you get for the, the end of the quest is just one and you automatically get it. Um, I did find that the one I got through, you know, in the middle of the campaign was very useful because it allowed me to, in my shadowy recall, allowed me to put a model from anywhere on the board instead of just within 12 inches, which helped me save models or reposition models that, you know, may have come in round three and they're way across the board. Well, I can use a shadowy recall and now they're in the thick of the action, you know, so extremely helpful in those cases. And uh, the final um, artifact that I got for the quest was was one that gave me two bonus wild die to, you know, for the for the game, you know, to start with, and so for me, I had to decide. Okay, well, who am I going to give the second artifact to? Because uh, you, you know, you if you give it to the Thrallmaster, he loses his previous one, and, and there's this one occasion where you can you can trade out and then and then have somebody else take the artifact of power. So in this case, I gave my final artifact to my champion, you know, so she could be on the board, you know, in most games and add that extra two wild dice where my Thrallmaster could still capitalize on, you know, using Shadow Recall across the board. So I, I found it be it can be quite useful. Those bonus wild die are extremely helpful, especially when you have a bad roll. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do you want to hear what I, I would have won if, if Paven didn't thwart me? Definitely. The Devourer's Blessing. Once per battle, the bearer can use this artifact as an action. If they do so until the end of the battle, add two to the damage points allocated by each hit or critical hit from attack actions made by friendly fighters that have a range characteristic of three or less while they're within six inches of the bearer. Wow. That is beefy. So cool. (laughs) And yet you were denied the Devourer's Blessing. I was denied the Devourer's Blessing. Better luck next league. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just... Play more better, guys. Play more better. 
Get good. Oh, wait, no, that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eric, maybe when this episode comes out, you can listen to it. <laughs> Thanks. Nice. Thanks, David. <laughs> I, will. I will. I will. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me, guys. Let's lock it down. It's time to put a muzzle on this episode. If it was a good, good dog, support the show with a positive review on iTunes, sharing it with friends, joining us for hobby discussions at themotorrealms.com forward slash discord, or leave a tip at themotorrealms.com forward slash Patreon. More content is available at themotorrealms.com and on Twitter at Dogs of Warcry.